You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Around the time that Vanessa and I accepted the call to plant Grace Mosaic, we had just, uh, you know, we were in the process of moving into a new house on 7th Street right behind the hospital formerly known as Providence. And uh, you'll get that joke later. Um, But before we could move into the house, we had to meet with the owner of the house in order to sign a lease. Now, many of you are familiar with the fact that a lease spells out the use of space, how you are to live in the house. It's like an establishment of house rules. And the lease addresses those rules from various angles with different sections in the lease. And it answers questions like this. When is rent due? Can I have a pet? Can I sublet? What happens if I don't pay my rent? And all these sections in the lease are designed for the good of everybody involved. A lease gives structure and expectations for those living in the house. And it also details responsibilities what is owed to the owner of the house. If you're living there, you want to know what is expected of me. Now, you could, like many people do, sign the lease and then go on to forget all about the material that was in the lease. But the reality is that regardless of whether you keep the lease in mind or you disregard the lease and forget it, you're still obligated to the lease. And there are consequences if you break the lease, if you disregard the agreement. Now, if you can understand how that works, I want you to consider for a moment that we live in God's world. We occupy his space. We we live in his house, so to speak. He is the creator. And this is a foundational axiom of the Christian faith. And as the creator, the Lord has given us his law. His framework, what I'm calling in this series, a rule of love that helps us to understand how we are to live in his house. And it has different sections to it that address different questions that we have, like, how am I to worship? How should I think about my time and rest? How do I relate to parents or authorities? What are my obligations to my housemates, a.k.a. my neighbors? These Ten Commandments, this law, is meant to help us to understand how to live the life of love in God's world, how to love him fully as our creator and redeemer, and how to love our neighbors. These are God's expectations for those who are living in his house. The law tells us that we owe the owner of the house. And it tells us of our responsibilities to our housemates. And even if you sign the lease and then put it out of your mind, you are still obligated, no less. So this fall, we're going to work through uh, each of the Ten Commandments in a series called The Rule of Love. And today we begin with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. 
we're going to approach this subject through two points as we consider the context of love and the correction of love. Our first point will be drawn from our Exodus passage. Our second point will be drawn from our First Kings passage. So let's look at this first point, the context of love. The Ten Commandments begin with a crucial context. And this context really establishes the character of the law and how you might receive the law. Take a look with me at the prologue to the Ten Commandments in the first two verses of Exodus 20. They read like this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now it's important for us to understand that before God gives his people his law, he provides the context in which they are to interpret the law. He provides the context in which they are to see, understand, and receive the law. And the Lord begins with the announcement of his covenant name. As you, rem if, as you might remember, a few weeks ago, Pastor C that was last week, Pastor Cyril preached on the name of God. And one of the things that he shared with us is that anytime you see the word Lord in, in caps in the Bible, it's a translation of Yahweh, the personal name of God. And what God does here is he begins with an announcement of his covenant name, Yahweh. And the announcement, this beginning with the announcement of his covenant name, was meant to produce an immediate association with his glorious person, with his character, with his attributes as he revealed himself up to that point, but particularly in Exodus 3 where he revealed his holy name. The law to follow comes from the holy God of the burning bush. This is context. Do you disregard things that come from holy gods who burn bushes? No, you don't. Do you disregard things that come from the all-consuming fire who is self-existent? No, you don't. There's a certain reverence and respect and awe that this is meant to strike at the very beginning. Context. This is coming from the one who stopped Moses as he was approaching the burning bush in curiosity, telling him, take off your sandals, Moses, because you're standing on holy ground. The law comes from this God. The law originates with the holy God from whom Moses hid his face in awe and reverence. The context of the law is a sobering awareness of its originator, the Holy One, Yahweh. And the law flows from all his perfections. So whatever you do with the law, you must remember that the law is the revealed will of this holy God. And the revelation of his will is an expression of all his perfections. But there's more context. Let's continue through. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Now we have to pause there for more context because the possessive pronoun shows us that the context of the law is deeply relational. It's deeply relational. The law is not to be received as a cold, sterile arbitrary or heartless set of principles. It's not an abstract code of conduct 
drop down from a distant, half-hearted God. If you think of the Ten Commandments in this way, of course you're going to have an aversion to them. But if you think of the Ten Commandments in this way, you're not understanding the Ten Commandments in their proper context. They come from a holy God, but that holy God sets the context of personal intimacy before he actually gives the law. If you think of the Ten Commandments in that cold, sterile, drop-down kind of manner, obviously you're going to have an aversion to them. But if you understand the relational context, the personal intimacy out of which they flow, it changes your perspective. Now, allow me an illustration. Imagine that you receive a large amount of money for your inheritance. And you receive two letters telling you what you must do with that money. The first letter comes from the IRS. And they tell you that you must declare that money as income and that you must pay a 30% tax on that income. Now, the second letter is left to you by your parents who tell you that they want you to use this money to pay off your debts, to establish a fund for your children's education, and that you must give a certain percentage of the interest to the poor every year. Both letters are laying obligations on you. But you hear those letters very differently. The letter that, that is shaped by relational intimacy, though it has obligations, it lands on you in a different way because of the relationship. That is the way that we are to experience the context of the law, the Torah, the Decalogue. I'm going to use those words interchangeably. We're referring to the same thing here in this, in this series, the Ten Commandments. But not only is there a context set as it relates to the holiness of God and his character and his, and his attributes, and not only is there a context that is set of relational intimacy, there's another layer here. Look at the text. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The reference to the Lord's liberating work on Israel's behalf in Exodus shows us that the context of the law is grace. The context of the law is grace. Now, we have to be careful because oftentimes we read the entire Bible through a purely Pauline lens. And we often misunderstand statements that Paul made about the law, and then we impose that over all the law, and we end up working contrary to the law, or disregarding it, or thinking, oh, we're no longer obligated to the law. That comes from a misunderstanding of Paul. But if you understand the context here, it should help to reshape your understanding of the law and how you interpret the law. The context of the law, the final contextual piece of the law is grace. And this is where many people misinterpret the law because they get the order backwards. They think that obedience to the law is how they are to win God's favor or God's salvation. But never forget that God's mighty acts of deliverance, his great work of salvation comes first. Grace comes first 
And then law follows after that as an explanation of how God's redeemed people are to live. How they are obligated to live in light of his grace. And you got to understand that there is a world of difference between if you obey me, I'll set you free. Versus, I have set you free. Now I want you to obey me. Because the fact that I set you free ought to let you know that my intentions for you are good and beautiful and right. If I set you free from slavery, then I'm plotting your flourishing in every single way. I have proven my trustworthiness. I have proven my character. Look at what I saved you from. I want you to receive my commandments, my rule of love in this context. Grace comes first, then the law follows as an explanation. To put it another way, the love that God demonstrates in redemption precedes the love that God demands in the law. The love that God demonstrates in redemption precedes the love that God demands in the law. Let me be very clear. The law flows from love. It structures love. It aims at love. It demands love. It's all about love. And Jesus said as much when he was questioned about what was the central message of the law. Jesus said, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In these, the law is summarized. In this, the law is met. This is why the Ten Commandments have been understood as a key source for Christian ethics through, through the millennia. Church fathers and scholars talk about the two tables of the law. And if you haven't heard that language, what that is meant to refer to is the basic breakdown of the law. If you look at the Decalogue, if you look at the Ten Commandments, what you will notice is that the first four commandments are all about loving God. And the final six commandments are all about loving neighbor. It's about structuring love for God and love for neighbor. And when it comes to the Ten Commandments, one of the ways that we interpret what you would call a decalogical hermeneutic, how you interpret the Ten Commandments, we come to each commandment and we understand that each commandment has sins that are forbidden and duties that are required. This is a, the way that our tradition, the Reformed tradition, has approached the law. This is one of those interpretive grids by which we understand the law. And we're going to work down through those as we continue through this series. Our misunderstandings of the law and aversions to the law most often result from taking the law out of context. You know how I want you to see the law? This is how I want you to see the law. Because the, the law is all about love, that, and, and the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are a central source of Christian ethics, it has been known over the centuries that the, the central ethic of, of Christianity is love. And it makes sense why 
our central ethical source historically has been the Ten Commandments. But I want you to think of it another way. I want you to think of the Ten Commandments as ten different perspectives on love. Each of them give you their own unique window into the life of love. And that is another hermeneutical grid, interpretive grid, that we're going to apply to understanding these Ten Commandments. Each one gives you a different angle on love. And by giving you those different perspectives, they fill out your understanding of what love is. So for Christians, we don't have this amorphous love is love perspective. No, we have a deeply fleshed out, structured understanding of love. And the more we live into it, the more we lean into understanding this, the more our lives may be shaped by that love. The more our lives may be shaped by that love. As a Christian, you can't say that you're serious about the life of love while you disregard the Ten Commandments. You can't. You can't because they are central for the Christian understanding of love. And like I said, even a cursory look at the life and teachings of Jesus confirm this. Go, if you go through the Gospels and you try to cut out all the affirmations that Jesus makes about the law and all the ways that the Gospel writers subtly indicate how Jesus was a law keeper and the fulfiller of the law, if you cut all of those out, you wouldn't have much Gospels left. That's how significant the law is to the life and the teaching of Jesus. Our misunderstandings of the law and our aversions to the law most often result from taking the law out of context. So remember, when it comes to hearing and receiving the law, it comes from this holy, magnificent God. And it comes in the context of relational intimacy, and also, it comes in the context of grace. And it's within this context that we come to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment, it calls Yahweh's people to prioritize loyal love to him in light of his loyal love. He's already established his loyal love in the context now he calls for reciprocity. He calls for us to love him with a loyal love. It's like, I want you to, the first commandment is like a wife saying to her husband, you may not cheat on me. You may not. Now, could you imagine a husband saying, oh, shucks, honey, that sounds kind of moralistic. <laughs> you know, you're just legalistic. All you want to do is be about the do's and don'ts. By the way, you need do's and don'ts. And I need do's and don'ts. You could never imagine it being right for a husband to bring that kind of response back. So we shouldn't bring this response back to the Decalogue. We shouldn't bring this back to you shall have no other gods before me. And a striking illustration of the urgency of the first commandment it's found in our second, our second text, 1 Kings chapter 18, which brings us to our second point, the correction of love. Though Israel had originally received this law with an honest desire to obey, they saw what the Lord did. 
they were duly impressed. And they really did strive throughout their history at many points to live into this law. Even though they did that, the fact of the matter is that over many seasons of their life, they found themselves on the opposite side of the law. Which is to say that they found themselves on the opposite side of love for God and love for neighbor. They found themselves grievously breaking the lease. And when we get to the book of Kings, the Israelite monarchy has been in steady decline. But a new low point was struck during the reign of Ahab. Ahab. And if if you want to know what was going on, all you have to do is turn back one chapter to to chapter 17. This is how the, the writer of Kings puts it. Elijah comes on the scene, right? And, and, and usually when prophets came on the scene, they came to do direct interaction with the king. They were, they were giving direct words to the king. And, and they would also give broader words to God's people and even oracles against foreign nations. But most of the time, they were giving their ministry, their prophetic ministry, directly to the king. And the, what we learn in, actually it's at the end of 16, end of chapter 16. Chapter 17 introduces Elijah. Before that, we get the introduction of Ahab. This is what chapter 16 says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's the little snapshot of Ahab. By the way, I'm going to go back and forth between saying Baal and Baal. Because if you're reading through in Hebrew, you you pronounce it Baal. But it can get a little cumbersome sometimes. So I might say Baal, okay? (laughs) All right, so this is the new low point. And it's into this situation that Elijah shows up on the scene. Ahab had led Israel in turning their hearts from the Lord, from Yahweh, exchanging their trust and their worship of the true and living God for the worship of false gods like Baal and Asherah. Asherah was Baal's girlfriend in the pantheon of the ancient Near East in this this time. In other words, they descended into idolatry. But because of his great love for his people, the Lord constantly sent his prophets, his spokesmen, to bring words of correction to his people, to bring them back to the covenant law of love, to the rule of love. And this helps us to understand Elijah's arrival on the scene in this text. The Lord is determined to bring his people back to love. You might read the prophets and hear the harshness sometimes. You have to understand that that was all in the interest of bringing God's people back to love, warning them of what happens when they depart from love, And beckoning them, come home to love. Come home to my love and return to your obligations 
to live the life of love toward God and neighbor. In Elijah's first encounter with Ahab in chapter 17, the prophet declared to Ahab that there was going to be a drought in the land. No rain was going to fall except at the word of the prophet. And this drought turned into a famine. Three years. Three years of drought and famine. But instead of turning their hearts back to the Lord, Ahab and the people of Israel descended further into idolatry and placed their faith and hopes in Baal as the solution. Do you understand what is happening here? They turned to idolatry to solve the problems that idolatry created. Does that sound familiar? Our idolatry gets us into tight spots. Our, our eye for consumption and acquisition gets us into a tight spot. But rather than turning our hearts to the Lord in repentance and calling on him for mercy, we then turn to the God of mammon to try and solve the problem that our idolatrous pursuit of material goods got us into. This is a continual pattern of idolatry. But in this text, we have to ask a question. What was the attraction of Baal? What was the attraction? Well, I'm going to give you an overview, but if you really want to know the deep stuff, you can talk to our good brother Paul Major back there who's an expert in such matters. I'm just going to do the pastor thing and give you the 30,000 foot, all right? Baal was known as the weather god of the Western Semitic people. The surrounding neighbors of Israel were the Western Semitic peoples. Baal was called the rider of the clouds and was often portrayed with a thunderbolt in his hand, or a lightning bolt in his hand, and thunder was identified with his voice. And in, a, in an agrarian society that was suffering drought and famine, this made Baal seem like a pretty decent bet. Why don't we turn to the god of the weather? Maybe we can get some rain and then some crops, and then we can survive. Baal seemed to be better suited, more relevant to the need at hand. Somehow the people had forgotten that the drought and the famine was a prophetic judgment on their worship of Baal. But not only does the Lord correct his people in love through the ministry of the prophet, when God sends his prophets, he sends them in love. Because he loves his people, he wants to reclaim them. If God was just like, just raw, like violent and, and, and like, you know, barbaric as lots of people like to portray him, then why would he warn his people that the judgment was coming? Why would he call them to flee from what was killing them and to come back to life? Why would he establish a temple worship that has atonement for sin? No, that's not an accurate portrayal of God. That's a misunderstanding of what's happening in the prophetic text. What God is doing is he's sending his prophet in love. This is the correction that springs from God's heart of love. Because God loves his people, he aims to correct our idolatry. And not only this, his aim is to correct the love of his people because their disordered love was the entire problem itself. Their love got disordered, and that's what landed them in idolatry. If the law is all about the love of God, 
structuring our love for God and our love for neighbor, then to depart from the law is to depart from love for God and love for neighbor. This was everything that the Lord wanted for his people. But every one of the commandments, every one of the Ten Commandments, hinge upon the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You will never live into the rest of them if you betray or forsake the first one. Which involves loyal love to Yahweh. So the Lord corrects his people in love so that they will return to rightly ordered love. And he does this in a most spectacular way through the prophet Elijah. The confrontation begins in verses 17 through 18 of chapter 18. When Ahab and Elijah meet, it's like, I can't whistle right now, I'm smiling. And Ahab goes, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he's laying the blame for the drought and the famine at the feet of Elijah. And Elijah goes, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel because you led the people into idolatry and you have forsaken the commands of the Lord. This drought and the consequential famine are laid at your feet. You're the blame. You're the king who was supposed to lead his people in righteousness. And then Elijah, after turning it right back on Ahab, he calls for a showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And he tells Ahab to gather all of Israel. Mount, Mount Carmel is known as being like a plateau kind of geography. There, it, was, it was lifted up. It was known as a central site of Baal worship. So Elijah is, is, is going to enter into this contest, and he's on their turf. And, and, and he calls all of the people, 450 prophets of Baal, all of the people of Israel, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And he calls them all to Mount Carmel. And in verse 21, when everyone arrives at Mount Carmel, Elijah directly confronts the people with a, with a hard question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. What God is after in his people is not just a militaristic conformity to principle. He wants his people to flourish in living out the life of love and extending his kingdom of love. And this is why he is so adamant and so unflinching about bringing his people back to love by any means that he deems necessary. And we need to hear this prophetic interrogation just as much as Israel of old. In here today, you need to hear this prophetic word and you need to consider it. If Elijah were to show up and preach to us today, he might say this. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if political power, then follow it. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if money, then follow it. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if you are, follow your heart. Do you see? He is not allowing there to be any middle road. 
And in all of our behaviors and in all of our actions, we are revealing our loyalties. Are you sometimey as it relates to Christian community? Are you sometimey as it relates to Sunday morning worship? You got you to speak straight. Do you show up on time ready to worship or do you come cruising in late? All of our actions, all of our behaviors, all of the deeds of our lives are revelatory of our loyalties, of what we worship, of what or who we're faithful to. And any lack of conformity in our lives to the perfect revealed will of God, taking him seriously, treating him with reverence. He says he's present in this place. Do you yawn through worship? Like this is just one little example that's an easy target because I sit up here and watch you every week. Right? It's, it's, it's a prophetic. I never said that a prophetic word was comfortable. But it is life-giving if you receive it like it is. The word of the Lord. He comes in and he doesn't allow for this fence-sitting or this middle-road approach where you can have the Lord plus your idols of choice. Again, that's like a husband bringing a girlfriend home to his wife and thinking it's going to be acceptable. Hey, honey, look who I brought home, a new friend. Like she's going to say, oh, let me go prepare a room. What? It's a simple illustration that barely scratches the surface of how high-handed an offense it is to God, the Holy One, the Lord, Yahweh, to engage in idolatry, to demote him on the priority list. Grievous. That's grievous. It should break our hearts when we find this kind of sin within. You see, the people were trying to hedge their bets with additional gods just in case the Lord didn't come through. Does that sound Okay. Of course it does. That's why we need this text. That's why we need this text. Verses 20 through 24, Elijah proposes a test to see whether the Lord or Baal was the true God. And he gives Baal every opportunity to succeed, every advantage. He sets up the whole encounter at one of the central sites of Baal worship. It's on his home turf, right? And the, the kind of test that he sets up, it's the lone figure of Elijah with 450 prophets of Baal on the other side. It's, it's Elijah contra mundum, Elijah against the world, right? Not only this, but the, the, the setup of the, the sacrifice, something really interesting going on here. The God who responded by fire would be the true God. Now, here's what's interesting. This entire contest played to Baal's supposed strengths as a deity. In addition to being considered a weather god, Baal was, there were many Baals, by the way, not just one Baal. There were many variations of Baal. And Baal was the name used to kind of describe this subspecies of worship. But Baal was also known as the god of the sun who controlled fire. This was his area of special expertise. Surely Baal could manage to get a fire lit under a sacrifice. If there was anything that Baal should be able to do, it's start a fire. So the whole thing is set up 
from a physical standpoint in, in Bale's favor. He has home court advantage. He has, you know, the, a contest set up to play to his supposed strengths. He ought to be able to start a fire. But in verses 25 to 20, 29, with the agreement of the audience, the contest gets underway. And Baal's representatives go first. And the text tells us that they called on Baal from morning until noon. In case you're not good at math, that's three hours of praying. And they are calling out. And the text tells us that they are limping around the altar. There's a wordplay going on in the Hebrew. When Elijah says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? The limping that they're doing was a ritual dance of worship. They're dancing around trying to get Baal to respond, right? They're calling on Baal. They get no response, and the text is very clear about that. They perform their ritual dance. They're limping around the altar, but again, there's no response. And then in verse 27, there is this wonderful piece of prophetic humor. Their failure prompts Elijah to mock them. He's sitting back, and it's like, it's like he's sitting back watching, and he says, Hey, why don't you pray a little louder? Go ahead, go ahead, pray a little louder. Maybe Baal's thinking on it. He can't figure out how to get that fire lit yet. Oh, oh, you know what? Maybe he's in the bathroom doing number two. <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, no. Maybe he went on vacation, y'all. Or, or, or maybe he's asleep and you just got to wake him up. Louder. Elijah is taunting them in their idolatry. Now, I want you to think about Israel watching on. Imagine they're watching the 450 prophets of Baal bending over backwards to try and get Baal to answer. Silence. And they're watching Elijah just ridicule and mock their practices. And then finally, they get so desperate that they begin to ritually lacerate themselves, to cut themselves in hopes that their cutting of themselves would win Baal's mercy in response. And you notice the way the text put it. It seems like it's like a, it's not just this little cut that you put a band-aid on. It seems like there's blood gushing. That's the sense that I feel like I pick up from this text. So imagine the scene. 450 prophets of Baal covered in blood, dancing around, limping, trying to get Baal to answer. Like, come on, Baal. Come on, Baal. Morning to noon. Then it continues on through the rest of the afternoon. They wind up a bloody mess. But the text tells us, but there was no voice. No one answered no one paid attention. And this, family, is the devastating reality of idolatry. Idols always take more than they give. They always betray the faith that you place in them. They always crush the hopes that you lay upon them. They always leave you desperate and wounded. They never return the love that you give them. That's the facts about idolatry. The key repetition of this passage underscores the truth of idol worship. Anytime you are tempted to place your trust in something above the Lord or to try and supplement the Lord with 
something else. Remember this, verse 26, but there was no voice and no one answered. Verse 29, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Idols, the prophets later tell us, are nothings. They are nothings. There's no material substance behind them. They are figments of our own creation. In verses 30 through 40, Elijah finally begins. It's at the time of the, the evening offering of, of sacrifice. And Elijah begins to repair the Lord's altar, which had been destroyed. It's one prophet, all by his lonesome. And I imagine that as Elijah was taking the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolically showing that he had authority over Israel, not Ahab, as he was setting up this altar and preparing it, I imagine he was doing this. Who can compare? Who would even dare? There is no one like him. Like, I, that's how I imagine Elijah in his head. He's like, they ain't ready. They ain't ready for what's about to go down. It's about to be some 4th of July off in here. And so he gets it all set up. And Elijah calls upon the Lord as the God of Israel's ancestors. He calls upon the Lord with a simple prayer. He wasn't dancing around to try and manipulate the God to respond. He wasn't cutting himself. It didn't take long-winded prayer. One simple prayer, Elijah prayed. And we need to hear that prayer. This is what Elijah says in his prayer. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. How long did that take? 20 seconds? And immediately, fire whoo, descends on the offering. And it doesn't just burn the offering. It burns the altar. It burned the stones up. It burnt the dust. There was nothing left for anyone to take and turn into an idol. <laughs> it is all consumed by the all-consuming one. And it, what's the immediate response of the people? They are awakened. <laughs> they are awestruck. And they say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. They are cut to the quick. They are hit right now. And then Elijah finishes the job by fulfilling later portions of the law that say false prophets must be put to death. So through and through, the prophet is a, is a man who is captive to the law of God. In this text, by the way, what they say actually echoes Elijah's name. Eliyah, Yahweh is my God. And they say the Lord, he is God. It's like an echo of the name Elijah. In this text, the prophet brings the people back to the first commandment in an extraordinary fashion. But the way in which our love is corrected, as I close, comes in understanding that this was not the last time 
that God would send a prophet to enter into conflict with forces opposed to his rule of love. But the true and greater prophet, Jesus Christ, doesn't call down fire to consume an offering on the altar. He becomes the offering that is consumed on the altar, and he calls down his spirit to convict us of our law-breaking, to convince us of Jesus' law-keeping on our behalf, and to help us to flee to Christ and faith, hope, loyal love, and worship. In Jesus, we see love perfected, and this is how our love is corrected. It's through his perfect love, receiving it, observing it, and living in it. On this side of the gospel, we see that there should be no other God before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't think of this, this commandment in a Unitarian way. We're Trinitarians. Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal in dignity and worthy, worthiness of worship. The gospel is the context in which we should hear the call of the triune God to exclusive loyal love. It's the same essential context holiness and magnificence of God's character, personal intimacy, and redeeming love. But those three take on a sharper focus in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in application, I want to give you two things to take away and take seriously. One, consider your priorities revealed in your practices. What would any reasonable person conclude about your commitments and priorities if they were to observe your life for a period of time? Would they conclude that God is your number one, that the Lord is faithful and good and worthy of all your worship? If they could see into every facet of your life, if they could see into your spending, if they could see into your calendar, if they could see into your relationships, if they could see into the way you do your work, would they conclude that you hold no other God besides him? worth reflection. Second, consider your why for your life choices. Why do you do what you do? And if your why, if the answer to your why is not the glory of God and response to his love for you, then it's likely that there's an idol hiding behind your, your life and your actions. We are a people that has been called in love to live the life of love. So as we journey over this next couple of weeks, let us humble ourselves under the rule of the Lord's love. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.